Hello, everyone, and welcome to Our Small Majority. I'm your host, Christian Black. And I'm your co-host, Matthew Gorich-Gorbsky. And today we have Christina Eubin here, a neurobiologist at the University of California, Irvine. Um, it's so great to have you here, Christina. I'm so excited. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Well, um, we just have a few questions for you and just to get your perspective, um, but just to give a little bit of background, um, we said that Christina worked at the University of California Irvine at an, as a neurobiologist, but she works in public health. Um, so what what's that like, Christina? How did you even become a neurobiologist? And then how did you steer into <laughs> public health rather than another department like neurobiology or the hard sciences or something like that? Yeah, so uh, it was just serendipitous or like stupid luck, honestly. And I really mean the luck part. Uh, I I I can't imagine a different career tra uh, trajectory, you know, where I would open up my own lab. And I'm very happy to stand, you know, fall in public health. But it was just pure luck. Um, I had never taken a public health course, and full disclosure, when um, a mentor of mine had recommended that I apply for the position. I just never imagined as a neuroscientist that I would ever be in public health. And I had to actually go on Google. This is very embarrassing now, but you know, two years ago, um, I, or two and a half years ago when I was interviewing, I had to go on Google and Google public health because as mm -hmm. a, as a basic scientist, I didn't fully understand what public health really meant. And so I had to Google it and research it um, to apply for a job in the Department of Public Health. And I'm kind of, you know, mm -hmm. the lonely neuroscientist in public health. And so I still connect with all the hard science, you know, um, departments and go to their seminars and work with their faculty. But um, public health has expanded my entire perspective and changed the way I use the basic science tools in my research and just completely made me rethink how I do research. Um, and yeah, it, it's been fabulous. And it, it's not, it couldn't be more relevant than now during a pandemic and civil unrest. So I'm very fortunate to have landed in public health. There aren't many of us. I don't know of anyone else. I'm sure they're out there. If they're listening to this, please contact right. me. <laughs> the neuroscientist <laughs> in public health. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't think of anyone else. I mean, that was when I we first met. I was like, oh, a neuroscientist in public health. Okay. Um, well, at, what did you find while researching public health? What is your sort of <laughs> brand of your definition of, as a neuroscientist, what is public health? Um, and why okay. is it important for it to be studied? Okay, that's a really good question because everyone will probably give you a different answer, which makes it a really neat question. Um, to me, when I was searching for it, it really was broad. And I realized that there are multiple definitions, uh, like textbook definitions, and it depends if you're doing a global public health course or epidemiology public health course. So there's all these different takes on public health. But in general, it's just, you know, kind of overseeing the general health of of people, of the citizens. And so just someone looking at it from a population level, really, in general. And so I was looking at teratogens, which is just basically something like a, 
a, a substance, like a, a toxin that can harm a fetus um, when exposed in utero dur- during pregnancy. And I realized, oh, you know, even though I was looking at how, you know, toxins harm the brain development during the fetal period and what that looks like in childhood and adolescence and adulthood um, in terms of what the brain looks like, I realized, oh, this is this totally is a public health you know, issue because um, a lot of things can get in and harm the baby. So I realized I do fit in public health, which made me really excited to interview. But um, when I was talking with all the different faculty, you know, when you go in for the interview process, they, uh, you give a job talk and all the faculty are there and the, you know, usually like the department chair and the dean. And then you go around for the whole day, just one after another, talking to all the different faculty in the department. And they basically all do a, their own mini interview <laughs> with you to see if they mm-hmm. want to work with you for a very long time. And they were so wild. They just, to me, they seemed so different and so diverse. You know, you had like... Um, just all these faculty working on everything from vaccines to earthquake frequency. And it's just, I mean, I, you know, to toxins in the soil around the world. And it's just, I was just like, what is the common connection here? And the, the, to me, the real common connection is trying to improve or optimize the environment, you know, the, the context, I should say, in which we're all, you know, living and developing in for me, since I'm focused on development, but that we're all living it, just trying to improve that so we can just like live and be our optimal right. versions of ourselves. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of health disparities that that not everyone has the same experience. You know, some people just live day in, day out, exposed to a bunch of things that affect their health and other people have less right. of that. So, um, that's not really fair. We're all humans. So it, you know, it's just kind of trying to look out for everybody, a global human species population. Sorry, that was a really long answer. So, (laughs) oh no, not at all. Not at all. Um, well, inside of your own research, you said that you, I know that you look into fetal alcohol syndrome or the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and then sort of tie it into, how you see differences between different groups of people. Yes. Okay. So um, I started out with basic models uh, back in my, my graduate days. I, I did rat research looking at mechanisms and yeah, we would breed rats. They would drink alcohol um, throughout pregnancy and we'd look at the offspring. And so I was looking at a neurobiological you know, signature in the brain in the hormones from the body that um, is specific to alcohol exposure via mom, um, you know, drinking it or consuming it during pregnancy and affecting the offspring and the, the baby. And, uh, and then that just changes the way that the brain functions and then the hormones that it produces, which then continue to change the way that the brain grows and develops and, and functions throughout life. And it makes them vulnerable for mental health disorder. So, uh, like 90% of people with a fe- with a FAS or fetal alcohol um, syndrome diagnosis have a, a diagnosed and pretty severe, um, you know, mood disorder and like uh, bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety and 90%. So you just, you just wonder like, why do so many people have this that were exposed to alcohol and other substances in utero? So doing rats, you know, you take out everything. You take out sociodemographics, income, race, ethnicity, education. You take it all out. And they're just really 
genetically and environmentally homogenous. They're all very similar. And so it allows you just to look at these neurobiological signatures and it really accelerates your understanding of it very quickly. You know, something that takes a very long time to do in humans. And so um, I got really tired of working with rats and I was done and I felt like I did, I did my part to science in that area and moved on to humans. And I've just been with humans ever since. So I do MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, and take you know fancy pictures of kids' brains. And then we look at kids who did not have exposure to substances in utero and kids who did and uh, look at the differences and relate it to mental health. We relate it to cognition, behavior. And what's interesting is the kids that, um, when I first embarked on this as a postdoctoral fellow after my PhD, uh, working and I was working with kids, I realized that the typically developing kids are the kids that didn't have prenatal exposure to substances. Um, the parents just were different. And then the parents of the kids who had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder that came in for the studies, it was a totally different scenario. So for example, most of the kids that came in that had FASD, so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which includes anyone who's been impacted by prenatal alcohol exposure and has lifelong impairments from it. All of those individuals, like 90% of them were adopted and not by a bi biological relative. And out of the kids that didn't have prenatal exposure, 90% of them were living with their biological parents. So it was totally flip-flopped. So there was like adoption. Then when you looked at sociodemographics, almost all of the adoptive parents of the kids with FASD were making 100,000 plus as a combined family income. Whereas the kids without exposure, there was a range. There was a range from, you know, making 30,000 a year as a family all the way up to like 150,000, you know, and uh, in general of the, it, on average. And so the amount of money they made varied. Uh, the parents who adopted kids with FASD tend to have a very high education on average as a group compared to a range of educations and just non-exposed kids. So it was, it just really hit me that a teratogen or a toxin that like harms a developing fetus is only part of the story. Yeah, it lives in the brain and that's real, but that's not the full story. You have to think about that context in which they're born into. And so when I dive deeper into the lives of these kids with FASD that were in my study, and I would just start asking, well, how old were they when they were, were adopted? And on average, they were two and a half years old when they entered the home in which they would eventually be adopted at. So two and a half years old is not how old they were when they were adopted. That's when they entered the home. I have a two and a half year old right now, Matthew and Christian. I don't like what if I just got her today. I mean, I've, I've been with her for two and a half years. I've just, so much mm -hmm. happens in, you know, secure attachment and just in that basic brain development during those two and a half years. So then it's like, well, what are these kids with FASD experiencing for those early, early months to years before they enter the stable mm -hmm. home that in which they'll be adopted? They, they, they experience instability. They experience malnutrition, uh, disease, infections, neglect abuse sometimes, uh, passing around of, of, of caregivers. I mean, this is a very common theme throughout multiple countries. This is not just the United States. And so I'm like, well, how much of this is, you know, prenatal substance exposure, altering the brain, causing mental health, you know, uh, problems later on for the rest of their life versus this early exposure that just mm -hmm. coincides with, with kids that were prenatal exposed. So, so to me, um, that really opened my eyes. And then when I landed in public health, everything changed. <laughs> I mean, my mind just was blown when I landed in public health. Um, just really thinking more about 
who we're doing this research on and why we're doing the research on them. And my role as the objective, unbiased scientist, just, I realize it's impossible to be that person. But as a basic scientist, you're, you're taught to just go in there with no agenda, no political views. You know, uh, you just go in there, you do your study, you put them in a scanner, take a picture of the brain, take your hormone measures of them, you know, and you study neuroendocrine, you know, hormone brain relationships throughout um, childhood, adolescence, and into adulthood. And you just do your research. And then public health, I mean, my colleagues and my students were coming at me, asking me really intense questions nobody had ever asked me before I entered public health. Um, so that was radically different. And when I, I do feel like a little bit of an outsider now in neuroscience and yet definitely an outsider in public health as well. So if there's any other neuroscientists in public health, please <laughs> let's connect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a lot to take in. So, so my you... students, so Chris, Chris there... yeah, Christian's in the lab. Christian works in my uh -huh, lab yeah. too. And, and uh, you know, my, my students that are getting their PhDs in the lab, um, I, I mean, I've been very open with them. This is not going to be an easy career trajectory. I mean, you're doing something that is pretty unique, you know, mm -hmm. um, getting a PhD in public health, but doing neuroimaging research is very, it's just unique. So what's your role, Christian, in the lab? What do you do? Well, my role in the lab is just, well, I'm just a postback. So like you and I, we just graduated from UCI. Mm -hmm. um, so right now I'm trying to apply inside graduate school. Um, and the reason why my interest and interest between Christina line up is that she combines um, neurobiological factors um, and basically neuroimaging. And then also another thing that we... Um, that I really want to mention is salivary bioscience. So basically taking salivary hormones or pretty much people's spit um, and running it and testing it. And the reason why that's so unique is that it's completely non-invasive and it's a lot easier to sample saliva mm -hmm. rather than, you know, blood samples or urine samples, especially for what I want to do involving inmates. So we might have a lot of backlash for, you know, hey, can I have inmate 06218's blood? Yeah. <laughs> so rather than, right. oh, can I have his spit? So you might have like a little bit more of more leeway. Um, of course, you're going to have like a few barriers and a few, a few no's. Um, but those interests definitely attracted me towards her lab. Um, and she's just been mentoring me and showing me different MRI modalities um, and different ways of measuring the brain and also sampling, um, mm. yeah, sampling people. Yeah. So, the, what, so Christian what, took a salivary bioscience course, and then that's how we met. And um, Christian, you know, you really striked me right when I first met you because not only did you have this really unique um, interest in inmates and a really – like you want to change the system. Like you're saying the system is broken, how we imprison, you know, people and, um, and, and you had this global perspective and you'd worked with inmates, um, you know, it, it, with more of a global perspective, not just focus on the United States, which I thought was really interesting. And then you're really passionate about salivary biosciences. So the other plug for uh, saliva is people can give the sample on their own. You don't need a phlebotomist to take a blood draw. I mean, you know, you basically can give them a tutorial video so they could take it in their cell on their own. You don't even really need someone to be there as long as you can 
do quality control and, you know, uh, protect the temperature of the sample later on, depending on what you're looking at. Sometimes mm-hmm. certain things you want to look at, biomarkers and saliva can be sent in the mail. So it's not invasive. It doesn't hurt. You're spitting in a tube. Um, you know, some people are more grossed out by it than others, but, uh, yeah, that you can do it anywhere. So you can bring it to someone. You don't have to put the person in the lab. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you step into a lab, you change, your physiology changes, you're in a new environment, it's novel, mm-hmm. and novel experiences change your physiology. So if you really want to know how someone's functioning day in, day out, take their biological samples in that context. I mean, that's the cool thing about saliva. And it's really hard to do that with other biological specimens. But it that's my sounds like for how bio, we're testing biosciences. <laughs> it kind of sounds like how we're testing for COVID, COVID? right now, right? What, yeah, because it's all it's all yeah, salivary, there, there right? Is you some just, saliva. You, yeah, you just get a Q-tip and then you you get some saliva and you stick it in a tube and just send it off. So it sounds very similar to that. So yeah, so that is supposed to be for virus, right? And yeah. they're working on mm-hmm. on making the antibody testing uh, from blood. Um, you know, something you can do in saliva, which you know groups have already figured that out now. But I don't know when that will become commercially available, but probably pretty soon. Yeah, it's super cool that you could just mm-hmm. do that, you know, and get your DNA, you can get your your uh, COVID-19, you know, antibody status, which, and it's not a perfect science, but neither are blood draws. It, it's not perfect. So, you know, it it it's like maybe really, it, it has a sensitivity and specificity, so it, it can accurately detect the thing you're trying to detect, like 93% of the time, all the way up to 97% of the time, depending on the context. But um, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's best to do two of them, like two weeks apart, if you really, really want to know, do two tests. Mm-hmm. Right. So what, what kind of confuses me is, there's been a lot of research for the negative effects of alcohol already and toxins when uh, you're having a baby, right? So why why is it still yes. such a huge issue? Like, like why do people keep ignoring the side effects? Matthew, so that's, oh my gosh, I could talk about that forever. So I will try to keep it short. <laughs> um, <laughs> so al- alcohol consuming you know, communities, I'll say, because within a society, you see different, you know, bubbles where there's more or less alcohol consumption. So I grew up in Minnesota, Minnesota, we consume some alcohol. <laughs> I mean, like a lot of alcohol, uh, people mm-hmm. who drink, not everyone drinks, obviously in Minnesota, but the people that do, it's, it's pretty intense. Like there's, there's, it's pretty, like there's several drinks in a city. Um, and, you know, you're definitely getting buzzed or, you know, you know, possibly drunk is it's definitely normalized to be tipsy and drunk, you know, just on like a Wednesday happy hour thing there. Whereas when I moved to California, Southern California, it was relatively low. I mean, there weren't a lot of people, people like, Oh no, I've already had two things, you know, and it's, it was, it was, uh, and then when you look at, you know, SAMHSA or CDC or, uh, National Institute of Health, you know, these organizations that track substance use throughout the States, uh, California is pretty low in general. And, you know, the Midwest is really high, Wisconsin, you know, and so, um, but within those, like Texas, for example, great, great example, Austin actually is lower binge consumption patterns, whereas mm-hmm. around the Dallas kind of county area, there's very high. So, so even when you just go by county and county, it changes. And then you can go even zoom in even more. Who are you hanging out with? Do you hang out with a bunch of people who like to drink every single time you hang out? 
Or do you hang out with people who are like, I just don't like how it makes me feel. I don't ever drink. Or do you hang out with someone who's like kind of in between? Sometimes you drink, sometimes you don't, right? And and alcohol is just yeah. so ingrained in our society that nobody, this is the problem. So, um, and I really, I, I, I don't know. What am I trying to say here? As a woman, I'm not saying that men can't understand this, but certainly as a, a it might I think it comes more easily for women to understand this, that particularly like of childbearing age is that especially women who maybe are trying to get pregnant and know that you shouldn't do this. So say, let's say if theoretically in an ideal world, their doctor is telling them this, people know this around them and they already have the knowledge that you should not consume substances, marijuana, tobacco, uh, you know, uh, pain pills, alcohol during pregnancy, or while you're trying to get pregnancy, because there's a period where you could be pregnant, but you don't yet test positive. And so you, there's a period where you don't know. And that's just biology. So if you're trying to get pregnant, mm -hmm. you actually abstain that whole time if you want to be 100% sure you're not exposing your pregnancy. But when you're in a pattern with a group of people and friends and a network and a society, you know, the community, the society, where Substance consumption is really a, a regular part of just your social, you know, being. Um, then that abstinence feels very odd because you're the only one abstaining. And when when you're in a social network where everyone's consuming at least something every time you get together, you know, it all of a sudden puts a hundred percent of that burden on the woman who's trying to get pregnant to just abstain on her own. So Australia's mm -hmm. had a lot of luck saying it's you know of course then when a kid has fas or fasd we're like oh why'd the mom drink and it's like well dude there's like everyone that hung out with her the partner if there was a part you know you know if there was a supportive partner that was that was part of the life parents you know family members if someone's trying to get pregnant and you know that or they are actively pregnant don't make them be the lone wolf practicing mm -hmm. abstinence Everyone has a role and a responsibility for that child's outcome. And I think that's a really powerful message. So Australia went with that as a prevention method, saying your partner, your friend, your family member, your coworker, if they're pregnant, don't engage in substance use. Do sober activities with them so that you can support them during their pregnancy and not using substances. And to people who don't use substances, it probably sounds like, yeah, well, like, why do you need that? But for the people who do, this probably is really resonating with you because it's it's odd to just all of a sudden not use substances for 10 months when you've been using them like every Friday or, you know, every Saturday or whatever mm -hmm. it is or every night for some people. So there's so part of that is the problem is that it's just so ingrained that women aren't being supported. Another part of the problem is mm -hmm. that, believe it or not, prenatal substance exposure to any substance is still not anywhere on the curriculum for med schools throughout the United States. <laughs> so we have medical professionals responsible for our pregnant women carrying our future children who actually don't know about FASD or FAS, and it's not their fault. It's, it's just our educational system. So at UCI, that's one thing we're trying to change and try to really promote that across med schools is make sure we have curriculum um, in every single pre-med, every single person who graduates pre-med should know about uh, prenatal substance exposure as a toxin and FASD. And then everyone who graduates med school should then have a graduate level training on it. And everyone who gets an undergrad degree in public health, this should also be on public health curriculum, but it's not. So I, I'm working hard 
now to try to get that implemented. And I'm not the only one. Other people are trying to work hard too. So part of the problem is that people don't know, Matthew, still. Like people honestly don't know that drinking during pregnancy is necessarily bad. Texas, it's actually, so a study I'm working on, it's a big study across the whole United States. And when you look at substance use in, in women who were pregnant 10, well, 11 years ago now, actually most of the women who only use alcohol throughout pregnancy are in a household that is married. They have over a college or more education and they make a hundred thousand or more combined as a family. So, so there's this idea that the reason why that's really striking to me is that doctors are less likely to tell and they're white. <laughs> I should mention that. So the uh, Caucasian <laughs> that doctors are less likely to tell a white Caucasian, well, you know, uh, you know, upper class income, a uh, higher education woman, or to, if they're less likely to even ask about it. And if they do, oh, well, I do drink wine here and there with dinner. Is that okay? Sure. They say, you know, like it's really interesting. But then when they go to serve, sure. you know, a population who has more minority, maybe a population who's minority and lower income and low education, they're more likely to be like, this is bad. Do not do this. We need to like, they more likely to coach them on these positive behaviors. Wow. So, so it's, it's mm -hmm. complex. We need to educate our medical providers to educate people. We need to educate the general public. Uh, and then when people do have education, we need to support them by engaging the whole community of their network to engage in sobriety during pregnancy alongside them. And it's, it's if people use substances, it's hard. I mean, like people lean on these things as, as uh, celebratory, as stress coping mechanisms, um, as inspiration mm -hmm. for creativity, depending on whatever. People lean on these things. And and when you do, a lot of people don't just randomly, you know, choose to stop for 10 months, you know? Um, so I think people underestimate how hard it can be for, for women to abstain for that period of time. And I think I was a bit surprised at how hard it seemed for women too, because I had the knowledge for my pre-doc training. So like for me, when I engaged in trying to, you know, have kids, um, and I was very lucky that I was trying to have kids. So I knew that I was trying. And so I, it was very obvious to me. I just had uh, needed to do 100% abstinence during that time. But I was kind of alone doing it the first time. And the second time, my husband was like, yeah, I'm not going to even drink a beer or anything because I want to support you. Um, and it was really, it was very uh, powerful to me to have a partner who just was like, well, I'm not going to use it. You can't use, I'm not going to use just one person. And it like mm -hmm. was very powerful experience. So yeah. And Australia has done that. So I think that the U S should do that. <laughs> yeah. Having that wow. support is important. Well, yeah. I guess and if you, maybe expanding also, yeah. on that. Yeah. I think like even expanding on that is like, well, if we move towards, you know, women who don't have that support or those support groups, when it comes to certain minority groups or certain ethnic groups, like the father is nowhere to be found. He's not inside the household and she's going to be a single mother or like they grew up in a ba bad neighborhood and, you know, substance um, use is the way that she copes. It's always the way that she copes. Have you seen any patterns like that without with the data that you've used or is that like absent? inside the data because um i know that you said that in texas they usually ask those questions to white women but in like you know minority groups and stuff um you know it's a it's a different story 
Right. Well, so they don't even really ask higher income white women about substance use, period. So Mm -hmm. if a woman's using, they aren't asked. They're not coached on it. They're not advised. Um, But they, you know, when when a physician deems, you know, someone to be part of what they would consider like label as higher risk um, because of lower income. And so the thing that's important about lower income is that you tend to have other environmental factors that come along. So maybe uh, lower income, uh, so high quality nutrients in a diet definitely help offset harm done by prenatal alcohol exposure. So nutrition's key and nutrition's kind of related to income uh, to some degree uh, on average. And then the other part is, you know, toxins. So lower income, you usually live in higher, denser areas, more urban areas, which is totally not true for rural areas. But in general, for the majority of lower income people throughout the whole United States, they live in a pretty dense area. So you get more noise pollution, air pollution, uh, possibly higher risk for lead and drinking. You know, um, maybe the food they're consuming is wrapped a certain way that's leaking chemicals. Maybe they buy the first lotion off the shelf that's not you know, uh, BPA, phthalate, you know, uh, free. So they get all these endocrine disruptors. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things that can harm uh, a child. And it's not just like the one thing that is so awful. It's the, it's the combination. It's the perfect, you know, storm of things that together they, they create a lot of harm for the fetus. But if you only have one or two of them on board, you know, um, you know, biology is resilient. So, um, So my message I give to my personal friends is definitely control what you can control. So please don't drink or use substances uh, if that's in your control. And, uh, you know, do care to not consume like things that have high levels of BPA and phthalates and lotions and things like that. Um, And, you know, maybe get an air filter. Like when I was living in L.A. and I was pregnant, I got an air filter for my air quality. You know, these kinds of things that you could control. But don't freak out about the things you can't control. Like, I definitely breathed a lot of bad air pretty much Monday through Friday going to the metro to work every day. (laughs) You know, I just, there's nothing Mm -hmm. I can do about that. I mean, that's where I lived. That's where I was going. So you just got to, stress is also harmful. So you got to, like, let go of some things that you can't control. So, yeah, I think think encouraging people to have that social support and to support each other or to support pregnant women is really important. And then Christian, you brought up a really good point. The most vulnerable women uh, for having harm to their fetus via substance use are going to be those who don't have that support anyway. And it's not just because they're going to have more substance use. It's because of all those other things that come along when you don't have support, like instability, maybe like, you know, not always having a safe place to sleep at night, um, you know, and, and so what you see with um, you see more kind of substance like alcohol use in this high income white kind of group in this in the study that we're looking at. But for the lower income groups, um, you actually see a lot less substance use. But then the women that are using are using lots of substances. It's not just alcohol. It's alcohol plus tobacco plus mm-hmm. marijuana, occasionally heroin or cocaine here and there. And that's way more harmful than just one substance on board, obviously. So I think that's why you see more mm-hmm. FAS and FASD with low with moms who, you know, fall in the lower income bracket at that point during pregnancy is that if they do use substances, they tend to use a bunch of different ones and they tend to use it at a higher dose and higher doses cause more harm. So it's better to drink right. seven, you know, servings of alcohol, one serving a day 
for seven days than it is to drink seven servings in one night. That seven, so it's the same amount of mm-hmm. alcohol at the end of the week that the fetus ex, is exposed to, but that high dose is really harmful to the fetus. So, mm-hmm. wow. Well, when it comes to uh, going back into like public health and stuff, and like environmental injustices, or even any other social injustices that you might have come across inside of your research, when it comes to substance mm-hmm. substance use and maybe even substance exposure, um, if we broaden the horizons more and we look at the environment itself and like like air pollution and things like that, um, is there anything that you found? during your studies for like um, using the databases that you use like ABCD or anything like that, that sort of separates people inside different socioeconomic um, statuses? Yeah. So um, I, this is not my work. This is just something that I collaborated on. Um, Mary Bell Gonzalez, Dr. Mary Bell Gonzalez with uh, San Diego state university. Um, she, she led these analyses, but she basically did um a analyses, like a group factor analyses, which just you get to group variables that um, seem like they are connected together, but then you get to see how they relate to kind of childhood um, brain and cognitive outcomes. So she did include prenatal substance exposure in there and sociodemographic factors like race, ethnicity, and income to needs ratio. So it's not just about how much money you make, but like, you know, how many people are living off that money. So income to needs. Um and adjusted for where in the U.S. you live and cost of living. So what she found, I mean, she really looked at, you know, kind of physical um, met- metrics or measures and then psychological uh, measures and then kind of more, um, you know, medical related ones, like which prenatal substance exposure kind of falls into that category. Um, and so yeah, we know that there are things that can be really protective no matter what income bracket you're in. And, you know, definitely, um, you know, school environment for both the kid and education um, level for the parent, no matter what income to needs, what race or ethnicity, um, it those are always going to be protective. So, and I'm not saying that because I'm a professor and I'm like promoting education. Like that's, that's what we found. Um, and this is not new. I mean, people found in previous studies that the school environment in which a kid, you know, goes and interacts in day in, day out is can be totally protective, even if they have to return home to a very chaotic, possibly abusive situation. If that school environment accepts them and, and makes them feel safe and supports them, that could be the difference in their lifelong trajectory of having like, you know, debilitating mental illness as an adult that leads to substance use problems or vice versa, um, or not, and being like a totally happy, healthy, productive adult that um, has, you know, doesn't use substances or has complete control over them and it doesn't impact them negatively. Um, It's really interesting. So that resilience versus risk, you know, school environment is really wonderful. what el- what else is interesting is that if you she just found this too if you look at prenatal tobacco exposure um as Mary Bella Gonzalez again that I'm um uh contributing to if you look at prenatal tobacco exposure you see really big effects if you if you're exposed to tobacco whether you're smoking it um 
which is all that she looked at. But certainly this would apply if your partner's smoking around you full time, like indoors, you still absorb it. Um, so those impacts on the developing fetus, looking nine to 10 years later at that now ch- nine to 10 year old child's brain and how they're performing in school and, and, and cognition, it's really interesting that you see huge effects if they're exposed to prenatal uh, tobacco or not. And I see the same with prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, but when you actually put in all those covariates for race, ethnicity, income, those effects start to diminish a little bit. And what that tells me mm-hmm. as a scientist, you know, one main in- interpretation of that, there's a few different ways you can interpret that. But the way that I think about it is prenatal substances cause harm. Like that should be completely clear. If you want your child's brain to be the optimal biological version it could possibly be, no substance exposure during pregnancy is the way to go um, as much as possible. Um, But all the other different sociodemographic factors also impact that child development. So if you have a lot of resilience factors on board, like good nutrition, stability, safety, um, like those things affect your physiology, less stress in your life. All those things will help kind of offset harm by substance use, um, even though substance use is still bad. But if you have a lot of stress, instability, poor nutrition, um, exposure to, you know, lead, air pollution, and, and, uh, you know, any other toxins, it's very likely that then any substance use you add into that mix is going to just cause way more harm because there's already insults happening to that developing fetus. So that really, you know, unfortunately in our country, we have huge, you know, race and uh, race-based, you know, disparities uh, based off of where you live, what kind of toxins you're exposed to in your environment, the kind of health care you get, how much you get paid to do the same job that the you know white guy gets paid to do. Um, you know, it's just like we have so many disparities across the board. So that shows up in health. And we all, if you've, mm-hmm. if you've done a degree in public health, you know all about health disparities and equity and equality and all of those things. So um, I think as a neuroscientist, I was very narrow focused thinking, well, we're all biologically the same. We're all a human species, right? Like we're all the same. So if I drink alcohol during pregnancy and someone else different from me drinks alcohol during pregnancy, our babies are going to be affected. Yeah, there's genetic differences, but it's going to harm them both. And the reality is mm-hmm. don't ever drink. <laughs> I'll just keep saying that over. Don't ever drink. Um, you know, if you do, don't freak out, you know, pay attention to nutrition, you know, try to manage stress and healthy coping mechanisms and try to avoid other toxin exposures, you know, if it's in your control. Um, but the most important thing is stop using women. Uh, so this is the other thing that we found out, Christian, since you had asked me, we looked at women who did not use substances, period. And then they got pregnant mm-hmm. and they continued to just not use substances. And we looked at their child brain and cognitive outcomes. Then we looked at moms who did use substances. Uh, the number one substance use used in pregnancy in the United States right now from my data, uh, it suggests that it is, number one is tobacco, number two is marijuana, and then alcohol is a very close third behind marijuana. They're almost tied. So that's kind of what's being used right now in general. Um, so women who use substances get pregnant and accidentally expose their pregnancy early on, but then when they find out that they're pregnant, they stop using their child's outcomes reflected by their brain measures and their co- the child's cognitive behavior or cognitive performance, sorry, and behavioral um, problems. So we look at like attention deficit disorder, 
um, impulsivity, and because that's another common thing with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, those mom's kids have slightly elevated behavioral problems and slightly lower uh, cognition and it's reflected in the brain compared to moms who don't use substances, period. No accidental exposure before they knew they were pregnant. But then when you look at moms mm-hmm. who used substances before they knew they were pregnant and then continued on after they knew they were pregnant, you see even more behavioral problems, lower cog- cognitive performance, and this is, again, reflected in the brain. So the the message I would say is if you accidentally expose your pregnancy to substances, stopping is significant. It significantly mm-hmm. impa- improves your child's outcome. If you stop using once you know you're pregnant, so don't totally freak out, you know, but um, – because I get a lot of people coming to me kind of behind the closed doors, like I accidentally exposed, right. like what, what is, what does that mean? And the reality is it still does. It's still not good. It's not setting your child up to be their optimal version, but it's not like they can still perform, you know, potentially at a chronological, you know, age appropriate grade level in school and things like that. But there is a difference as a group. You still see it mm-hmm. even with accidental early exposure. So yeah, so it's it's complicated. And this is, I should mention, these results I'm talking about are from the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study in the United States, which is all typically developing kids. So none of these kids, in theory, have FASD. Mm-hmm. And we're still mm-hmm. seeing these effects. These are kids who, at age 9 or 10, are in their age-appropriate grade. They're performing normally. They, there's no signs of disability, you know, like FASD. And we still see effects of prenatal substance exposure, which I think is really profound. Yeah. What what do those effects look like? They look like um, more symptoms that kind of push you along the scale to, you know, have more symptoms in line with ADHD. So they don't necessarily have ADHD mm. diagnosis, but they have more heightened symptoms getting you closer to an ADHD diagnosis. They have more um, symptoms of being like impulsive. So um, impulsivity is something that, you know, as your prefrontal cortex matures, it helps kind of, you know, you really want to eat that, you know, piece of cake, but you're like, "Ah, I should really wait. (laughs) And so it's the prefrontal (laughs) cortex, like making you delay that and plan for the future. And so impulsivity is kind of a way to, for us to assess like damage to the prefrontal cortex um, and the regions it interacts with closely. So it also looks like um, in the brain, it looks like um, uh, smaller subcortical brain volumes. So uh, specifically smaller thalamus, uh, smaller hippocampus. Um, And then we also found with cognition, um, slightly reduced global cognitive functioning just across the board Mm. with prenatal substance exposure. Mm So what's interesting is I I had to run my analyses. I didn't know statistically how to do this. So in statistics, um, you know, we do these things called covariates. So if I want to know the impact of prenatal substance exposure on the brain of a kid, um, but I think it might be different if, you know, based on income or based on um, income, meaning maybe that's reflective of, you know, quality of prenatal care or nutrition Um, And I wanted to, you know, I thought that race or ethnicity was important or geography. So like where they lived was important. Um, Then I would put all those things in my statistical model as a covariate. 
And so I'd control for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm still just asking the question, does prenatal substance exposure change the brain? Period. And, and then I, I don't have to think about what, you know, race they are or what income bracket they are in. I don't have to think about it because I just put it in the model. I co-vary for it. And I can just say, yes, prenatal substance exposure, you know, shows up and it affects the brain and it's related to more behavioral problems. So that's a really nice way. That's how I, as a basic scientist have, and a neuroimager, have always been trained to kind of just tuck these in as a covariate. And then when I started doing these analyses, I just felt like this is where public health really expanded my brain. <laughs> I felt like I wasn't really doing like race or ethnicity, you know, based health disparities. Uh, you know, it's do uh, it's it's it. I wasn't really looking at it. I was just kind of sweeping it under the rug by putting it as a covariate. And that's just all I've been trained to do. So I felt like we needed to do something a little bit more. So I actually did three separate sets of analyses. I did one only in low income. So these are combined families who make 50,000 or less a year for the whole family. Uh, We did middle income, which was 50 to 100,000. And we did high income, which was 100,000 plus. And I wanted to know, does prenatal alcohol exposure show up in the brain and with behavioral problems and with lower cognitive functioning in all of these income brackets? And what's interesting is the answer is, yes, it does. It shows up in all of them. But the effect size, so how big of the effect that prenatal alcohol exposure impairs all of these things, it gets... um, increasingly small as you get to higher income. So the, the, you see prenatal alcohol exposure has the biggest impairments in the lower income bracket and then less impairments in the middle income bracket and then the fewest impairments in the high income bracket. And you can subdivide that by race and ethnicity. And what you find out is, um, for whatever reason, I couldn't even run my analysis. This is why I could not really run my analyses in race and ethnicity is that the patterns of substance use in participants of the ABCD study, just you don't have everyone of every race and ethnicity for every income bracket using substances. For example, mm-hmm. I couldn't find any women who identified as Black or African American who uh, made as a combined family 100,000 or more. There was a group of those women, um, none of them use substances during pregnancy. So wow. I just find, and then for women who identify as being Asian, like there was like no, there was, there were some that used, um, there were definitely some that used some substances in, I think it was the middle and the higher income bracket, but in the low income bracket, there were none. There, there were, there, and there were, we, to be fair, there were only like 10 women who identified as Asian that were in the lower income bracket in this huge study of 11,000 plus families. But, um, so it gets really hard in science, and this is how public health is, has challenged me as a, a mm-hmm. basic biomarker neuroscientist, you know, uh, scient- uh, scientist, is all these nuances of how race and ethnicity and income, you know, do impact the, your day in, day out, um, you know, quality of life here in the United States as a whole, on average, as a group. All of those things do show up in your biology, but it's really hard to study them because we're, because it like, it's hard to find the same sample size to fit in all these subgroups of uh, when you divide it by income and race and ethnicity. So it's, um, I just found it really interesting that there's just some groups mm-hmm. of race plus uh, income that just don't use substances. 
So. And why do you think there is like that lack of representation between races or different um, income? Like, how do we improve that? Because if there's not enough representation, then you can't draw accurate conclusions saying, yes, right. like there is a difference between African-Americans and white people, or there isn't a difference if, you know, you only have 10 African-Americans compared to 10,000, you know, Caucasians. So, yeah, right. like well, how so how do you sort of jump that hurdle inside your own research? You know, I think, honestly, this is like such a... This is such the easy way out, but honestly, you know, we're, we're kind of required to keep analyzing and publishing, uh, even when you do see these flaws. And so you, the, you know, you do your due diligence, you report it, you say, this is a limitation. You know, I couldn't subgroup divide these teratogens by race, ethnicity, because I literally out of, you know, the like 75 women that participated who identified as black or African-American and made over a hundred thousand um, dollars a year, like none of them endorsed using any substances. So, I, you know, I, I literally can't even do the analyses because I have no sample in that bracket. <laughs> and so um, I think it's interesting. What's why? Why are those women not using substances? What is it about being Black or African American and making $100,000 more a year that is protective, right? Because we have lots of white women who make over 100000 a year that use substances in the study. So why, what, what is it about women who identify as uh, Black or African-American? I, th I think that's really, I think that you can look for more research questions to do more studies, but I don't have the answers. Um, what do you guys think? Well, oh, Matt, you go first, because I got my uh, answer. <laughs> well, I mean, I have, I have a few things, but they're very uh, uneducated guesses. Um, but I, I guess a question I'd have is like, are there other, are there other diseases or um, issues that are more prevalent, like health issues that are more prevalent in uh, black women that aren't in white women? Are there differences or is it always that, um, or is it always like wealthy white women who do more substances and, and have these mo more issues with their children? Or is it just this one specific instance? Because I think that might open up to even more questions there. Mm -hmm. You mean, is it just in the study that we're finding this or... Or is this really a thing that is true in the U.S.? Is that what you're asking? No, no. Like, are there other are there other studies that uh, have similar outcomes where it, it shows like where that um, wealthy white women have more issues, um, health issues in general? No, I not that uh, nothing nothing terribly obvious comes to mind. Um, you know, it's also complicated because it's not really just about it's, I mean, income and race are just proxies really for kind of how, you know, what, what quality of healthcare you're getting, how you're treated mm -hmm. when you show up for your healthcare. We all know, I mean, there's been tons of articles this past year that, you know, women who, um, are minority and and particular women who have darker skin, like whatever race or ethnicity, but if they have darker skin often, and I think one study actually said it was mostly African American women, they're just, they, when they have a lot of pain following childbirth, they're not taken seriously. And, and so that's, there's a high mortality rate. And when white women complain mm -hmm. about pain, they're taken more seriously. And this is seen across the whole medical field. I mean, these are like, 
these are unbiased or sorry, these are um, sub, you know, subconscious biases that society's kind of conditioned people to like have these weird, like racist thoughts about people. Mm -hmm. So like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, um, that like a woman who's African-American would, should not be taken as seriously that maybe she like it's just it's just i mean it's just crazy but i mean it's crazy to say these and and intelligently talk about it but the reality is these still continue on among highly trained intelligent compassionate people and so so these are like subconscious things that are driving in part you know racial disparities uh in health and Mm -hmm. Sorry, Matthew, I don't think I really answered your question. I don't know that there's an well, obvious explanation for it. I think it's going to be complicated, and I don't know the answer. Well, so if, so if wealthy white women are like, hey, I'm, I'm going to get good health care, you know, they, they don't, they, they're not used to having these issues. Do you think mm-hmm. that maybe they are less careful because of that? Oh, to- I see where you're going with that. Yeah. The yeah. other thing is um, – there's a bunch of studies that have been around for a while. I think they're just kind of resurfacing now um, because of the times with Black Lives Matter uh, protests and everyone just kind of having a, a whole nationwide awakening <laughs> for some people who uh, were not awake to it, the to uh, racism in our country, systemic and institutionalized racism. And I think mm-hmm. that um, I think people are starting to become more aware of these things but i yeah i think so i think as soon as kids in preschool the studies show that it doesn't you know the teachers treat they're more likely to uh notice bad negative unwanted behaviors if a kid is black or african-american or minority i mean i i don't mean to just focus on that but um but definitely just minority in general. And if the kid is white or Caucasian, um, they tend to focus more on the the behaviors that they're looking for, the the good ones, like they're listening or they did a good drawing. And both kids are exhibiting good and bad behaviors. There's no difference between the kids. It's how the teachers like there's this bias to look for bad things and kids mm-hmm. that are of you know that are dark darker skin and then the kids with lighter skin they look for good things and they've even done this sometimes in uh, teachers and so this happens at preschool so like if you're a kid and you go enter preschool you're already in a different world and so mm-hmm. um, I mean I think I'm preaching to the choir with you guys but like um, and to probably to the audience that listens to the show but like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these race, racist kind of system, like, like bullshit in our country, it just, it happens early, it happens young. And then flash forward, that little girl that was, you know, a three-year-old in a preschool, you know, is now, I mean, I would be a slightly distrustful, I don't know, um, if, mm-hmm. yeah, you might have to be more guarded. And if you are a Karen and you just like wear your white privilege and you know um, all of this stuff, then maybe you're less careful because your kid's going to be like favorably treated down the road. So if your kid has mm-hmm. a little ADHD, you guys, I'm like going way out on a limb. This is very unscientific of me, but if you're, oh, no, I, like, I like, <laughs> I like, you know, speculating. So like, yeah, if you're, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a conscious decision, like, Oh, I don't have to worry so much. I just think it's that 
well, my neighbor did it. My, my, my aunt, you know, drank or my friend drank or my, you know, so-and-so drank and their kids totally fine. Their kids like rocking at a soccer and like whatever on the honor roll. So clearly drinking is not bad during pregnancy because I can just list six people who did it or clearly Mm. marijuana in Boulder is so Colorado, (laughs) so accepted all these white, you know, higher income women. Oh, it's no big deal. I can smoke, you know, pot it's natural and then you know the more people that do it it becomes normalized and the kids probably do you know okay in school because like they're already looked at favorably being white and their parents have high education and and parents who have higher education uh we know tend to say yes to their kids more and parents with lower education tend to say no to kids more uh but Mm -hmm. i think that that's way simplified I think that mm-hmm. there's kind of this idea that women who say no to their kids a lot are probably raising their kids in contexts where they are fearful for their child's safety and they need to say no, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I don't know, you guys. It's a, it's a yeah. I mean, you you could go on and on for how all of these things are linked up, but remember our brain isn't predetermined. Like it's not like the egg and the sperm meet and boom, you know exactly who Christian or Matthew or, you know, Christina, who any of us are going to be. Our environment is shapes how those genes are expressed and how we are built at every single step. And even when we're, you know, entering puberty and all these adult level like hormones come on board and kind of slow down this plasticity and, you know, this ability to be malleable to the environment around you and make you more adult-like, um, even still, we're still always affected by our environment. And that day in, day out interaction, even if it's subtle, a subtle interaction that's chronic, that that happens over and over and over again for year after year after year, I mean, like, of course, that's going to show up in your brain and your health. Like, duh. I, I mean, um, so I think people that don't, you know, aren't totally into Black Lives Matter or aren't totally into changing our system and making it work for everybody equally and and really looking at it and looking at their own role in it. I think that they just, they downplay how significant racism Mm -hmm. really gets in and impacts people. I mean, they just downplay it. But I can tell you it's significant. (laughs) It shows up in your biology. Right. Well, well, going in more on um, an institutional level, like working with coworkers or board members and things like that, and actually trying to promote more research towards the parts that are lacking, like, hey, we should investigate more of why this is happening inside ethnic groups mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Do you see enough representation or enough push in positions of power? Um, in order to make that change happen, is either inside your own research or inside research that you've collaborated with. Yeah, so I can tell you that, yeah, being in the developmental neuroimaging field, which basically means I study development. Uh, you know, we all study development and of the brain because we're neuroimagers and we're taking pictures of the brain, and that means that we're, you know, most we're doing human research. Um, I can tell you that we're. A, a lot of white people and, you know, a, and powerful, like doing big studies with a lot of, you know, taxpayer money towards this, these grants. And we're, you know, um, in high positions of power. And I don't know that we all necessarily 
fully realize that. I mean, I, I certainly know that every year um, that I've been in public health, I realize it more and more. Um, and, um, and you start to realize that the questions we think are a priority are through a white dominant, like societal perspective or lens, because we're the ones that are in the driver's seat. And it's not that we're doing it like to be racist. It's just like, we have no diversity in the leadership. (laughs) So, um, you know, all the way down. And so it's, it's really, it is really lacking. And I don't, I think there's been a lot of discussion of how do we get more grants and funding for um, scientists who are of minority to come have a seat at our table and help, you know, bring the diversity to our studies and help bring diversity to the interpretation of our results and this and that. But the reality is that's just still giving us the the um, acknowledgement for that work, right? And what we mm-hmm. really need is a whole new table chosen and designed and placed by min- or scientists who are a minority group and doing their own studies, driving their own research agenda, doing executing it in their way, right? And so it's not just having more funding for underrepresented um, scientists to be part of our stuff. It's, it's just like, there needs to be more funding to let them be independent. Like we are, like we're allowed to be. Mm -hmm. And, and it really comes kind of down to power. And I don't know who's pulling all the strings. I have theories, but maybe that's after I I don't know if I record that but like you know i'm not tenured yet wait till i'm tenured so yeah i don't know who's i don't know who's pulling those strings but i also know christian i know that you wanted me to talk about south africa so i could kind of mm-hmm. jump into that a little bit um okay so as as a basic neuroscientist because it's related to the racing uh, um as a basic neuroscientist brand new in my career, had got my PhD, wrapping up my postdoc, you know, finished having a couple maternity leaves in there. And I was ready to start my own lab. And I was looking hard. And I wrote a grant that if funded, would, you know, really give me a lot of leverage to get fun, uh, to get hired. And uh, because I would pay my own salary. So it's really good. Um, You know, people are more likely to hire you when you can pay your own salary with a grant. And so I wrote this grant. And half of the grant is focused on South Africa, specifically in Cape Town, because Cape Town is known as the global, like, you know, hub for prenatal alcohol exposure and substance exposure in general, and and Mm -hmm. has the highest rates of fetal alcohol syndrome, and just all different types of, you know, um, effects under the FASD spectrum. So we just, you know, there's estimates as high as 27% at times, depending on what year you look, of kids being born who have been impacted. So not just exposed to alcohol, but they have effects. Like they're definitely affected uh, detrimentally because of alcohol. There's some meth and uh, marijuana exposure and tobacco, lots of tobacco. So it's, it's, so anyways, so I was like, oh yeah, of course, like write a good grant. Well, go where there's high prevalence, right? And then I can go in the population and they're, um, and do a really good job of understanding this. So, um, that seemed like a no brainer. If I had been in a neuroscience department, I would still be doing that study saying this is a global hub and I'm going to look at the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure on the brain. But I now flash back to our discussions in this podcast, you know, teratogen exposure 
is not all equal. It depends on all the other exposures, stress, stability, nutrition, right? Uh, Toxins, like what are the walls of your house painted with or built out of, right? Mm -hmm. So all of those things, just like, honestly, I just, it just didn't, it's just new for us in neuroscience. We're just, we're kind of just awakening to it in the last like five years or so, so to speak. Um, And you know, public health has been awake to this for, I don't even know how long, a very long time. So, so me just awakening to the fact that I'm not studying a human brain in isolation because we're all humans, but that this environment so, you know, intensely impacts us. I realized when I got over there in South Africa, you know, I realized that all the participants are living in a series of townships known as the Cape Flats, and they have Mm -hmm. generational displacement by foreign white people taking their land away, Mm -hmm. making them into vineyards, benefiting from the moist, you know, air of the ocean, hitting up the mountains of gorgeous, gorgeous Cape Town. And they literally took land away from uh, people in South Africa who were black and they took their land and then had them live on like an arid spot. And and this, I'm not the best person to give the history, but just, this is a cliff note mm-hmm. version. <laughs> so, um, and then basically over time, this community refused to leave despite government trying to take their little shanties, like kind of shack, self-built shack kind of style housing down. They just kept rebuilding and they became a community and it's huge. It's like bigger than Los Angeles. It's like huge when I went there. And um, so we have, so now I'm studying um, prenatal alcohol exposure on the brain. Wouldn't that be so easy if I could just go in and study that in these kids? But now I'm realizing, well, they have cross-generational displacement via racism there was a apartheid just you know barely like 20 years ago um and um everyone in the study is uh black and so there's like no racial diversity whatsoever uh pretty much most of them live in like either government housing or what we call a wendy shack which is kind of more like the way I see it is like metal and I don't know what's in that metal. Is it lead? Is it other toxins? Like what are these kids like? Where's their water coming from? Is it clean? Probably not. What's the sanitation thing like? You know, they're often sharing bathroom with multiple families. And I just don't, I just realized like, I'm not even like, they don't, this community doesn't even really probably care about prenatal alcohol exposure. That's like so far on the totem pole of their priorities. And here I am, mm-hmm. a white American foreigner, just perpetuating this cross-generational white person uh, taking advantage of like, you know, uh, people of color. And I didn't even know I was, I was, but here I have the government mm-hmm. paying me to do this research and I have this obligation to fulfill these, this agenda And so what I've come up with is just trying to do it in a better way that acknowledges (laughs) how limited Mm -hmm. this study is that we don't, you know, don't have all the, anyway, so there's all these caveats, right? And that maybe they have a hub, they're they're known as the global hub or the, the hotspot for FAS because maybe alcohol consumption is just like a byproduct of cross generational displacement and systemic racism Mm -hmm. and poverty and maybe alcoholism Mm -hmm. is just a symptom and it's not the cause and here i am just studying a symptom and not Mm -hmm. addressing like the much bigger picture and so when i try to communicate this to my collaborators you know it kind of like hit and miss and i I, also probably you know it's it's a journey i mean people are definitely receptive to listening but mm, 
sometimes more so than others. Mm. So you kind of have to take your time. Okay. So as um, I'm white or I Caucasian, whatever you want to call it, I'm like, and so, you know, I, I uh, pretty much during this whole civil unrest during the pandemic have been really trying to do my part to look inward in science as a white person and just get like who whose eyes aren't fully open to, to systemic and institutionalized right. racism. All right. Well, it's happening in our study. What can we do within our study that says within our control and just working with other white people to like get them to like really understand this because, you know, academia is often called that, you know, ivory tower for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that everyone in those positions that are considered ivory tower understand what that ivory mm-hmm. tower really means. I think they could say it, they could say the words, but I don't know that they like feel it. Like they really know mm-hmm. it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I'm just talking about white academics that I work with and some are way advanced from me. I mean like way further <laughs> down there, like path. So I'm kind of like a mid ground person in my, in my uh, ability to see and identify like institutionalized racism. Since I'm part of an institution, I'm part of, you know, I'm funded by national Institute of health, which is your lovely tax pay- tax dollars paying for research. Um, I'm part of, you know, a university that educates people um, and, and, and so it's, you know, I'm definitely in institutions um, with power yeah. and I can start to, I can identify it, but it's, um, I'm getting better at it, but I realize that some of the people I work closely with can't really see it, but they can say the words. But if you ask them for specific examples, they can't really see it fully yet. Right. So that's my, that's what I feel like my role is. And South Africa was very eye-opening. Um, in that whole realization about two years ago, and mostly because of my colleague, I went over there, Stephanie Bobison, um, really helped me navigate that uh, situation. (laughs) So, yeah, I think, I think looking at it that way, it's very humane. Because I think, I I do think like, a lot of research is just looking at things like subjects, instead of like human beings. Mm hmm. Well, and yes, and yeah, Matthew, especially yeah. basic scientists, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we do call them subjects, and and I and it's not because we're, it, it's not because we're trying to take a human aspect out of it, so so to speak. But I guess it it kind of is though in a way. It's like it's like well, but we're all biological. Like we all, unless you've had like a major major accident, like with a pole <laughs> that like impaired your brain, mm-hmm. like um, through part of your brain. Genius I mean, we page. all have the same <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, <laughs> we're all, we're all, we all have, you know, for the most part, uh, we all have the same brain regions. Although, you know, some newer research in the last couple of years suggests maybe we all have slightly different subnuclei, which I think is really interesting, but, um, but we all have like the same brains. I mean, we all have, um, you know, all these similar things. So it's easy as a basic scientist to be like, well, I'm studying the brain. What brain? The human brain. Oh, well, I'm studying the rat brain. I'm studying, you know, mm. the non-human primate brain or, you know, like the C. elegant, like the little worm brain, like, uh, well, well, more inter- interneurons rather than a brain, but like, you know, fish <laughs> brain. Like, so we, when, when you ask, what are you, well, what kind you know, you're studying brains. I mean, like we literally identify it by the species and then that's kind of as far as we go. And that, that really was a lot of my training. And so I think public health landing in a public health situation has made me see the human part 
And one of my best friends is a humanitarian and she gets really frustrated with science sometimes because we just get data and then we say, we give you a plot, a result. And, you know, it's like, oh, this, there was a disaster in this country and UNICEF went in and cleaned it up. And now we have, you know, two out of 2000 that are having trouble accessing food every day or something. And so that's a huge improvement, right? You know, only two out of 2000. So we just, that's, that's huge. Um, But then as a humanitarian, my best friend will go there or talk to people who are working there with her nonprofit organization she works for. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's so bad. Yeah. They have like barely any food and they're living in like mud. And like what, what baby is supposed to learn how to crawl and roll when they're in a refugee camp on a muddy floor. Like who like you know what I'm saying? Like these just the actual human day-to-day lived experience of the parents who are trying to just give their kid they fled something that was completely out of their control and they're trying to give their kid a like a a space to just develop in and that's like all they have. They don't have money to fly anywhere else. They don't have any ability to go anywhere else. They don't have like a passport. They don't I mean they they literally are at the mercy of like just the situation that they're in, like as a refugee. Um, and it's, it's, you know, so my, my humanitarian friend does criticize science for just like being numbers. And it's, it's really helped me in my professional growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I think I make her a little more trusting of scientists. Like we're not all bad, but like humanitarian <laughs> scientists, we should work hand in hand. Like, I don't know why we're separate. We should work hand in hand. So. And it definitely highlights like intersectionality between disciplines inside of university since we sort of separate like social sciences from hard sciences. So if you have that combination, it gives you a whole new perspective. Um, But we are over the one hour mark. We'd hate to like keep you because I know you've had a long day. Like you've had the meeting that we did (laughs) earlier today and then now um, this podcast. Um, so I just wanted to see, uh, where you were at and if, um, you wanted to end the meeting or if you wanted to still discuss, um, a few other things. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. This is great. I'll definitely take you up on an end because, um, I will probably go to bed now. Okay. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited, um, to start listening to some of the episodes and thank you so much for having me on the show. And, um, it was fun. It was really fun. And yeah. And- um, Thank you so much ahead, for teaching. Man. Thank you so much for teaching two dudes about healthy pregnancy practices <laughs> and neuroscience. <laughs> hey, now you know. Now you know when that time comes and you have that, you know, pregnant friend or or partner or you know whatever in your life, coworker, like you know, you play a significant role. Thank you again so much for listening to Our Small Majority and joining us with Christina Eubin. In our next episode, we'll be meeting Karamit Ryder, another professor at the University of California, Irvine. Now, what Ryder does is she focuses on the effects of solitary confinement in prison. And we're going to go to the famous or infamous Pelican Bay in Northern California. We'll see you next time. And again, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.